Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, Katie Halper. And I'm Matt Taibbi. Welcome. Welcome. How are you, Katie? I'm okay, you? Yeah, I've been better. Wow, well, maybe maybe we'll have an interview with someone that'll raise your spirits. Wouldn't maybe. that be amazing? That would be, that would be a really good idea. That's the best we could ever so, hope for. So, somebody, somebody with a little bit of joy in, joy in his or her heart. Some jazz. Some jazz, some, some art, some literature, some poetry. A little less anger, a little less rancor. Yeah, uh, dark times as, as, as uh, they have been for a while now. And it's a moment of extreme ugliness, even by the standards of the United States. Right, feel, which is really like. saying something. Yeah. I, w- I was thinking that like, this really is a time where I think we'll look back and be like, wow, this was a big shift. Because lots yeah. of times people are like, they don't realize it. They think it's like, Lots of times when you think something's a big deal, people are like, oh, it always seems that way. And then you look back. But I think this is a big one. You got the pandemic. Then you have obviously the protests that are exploding all around the country, um, which you know are hugely significant in, in a number of different directions. Mm-hmm. Strange times, dark times. Let's, let's get into talking about it. What do we okay. have for, um, what do we have for, for um, Democrats suck? So for Democrats suck, we have a lot of just general suckage. So we have this guy, Elliot Engel, who's running for Congress, who sucks. He's being, <laughs> he does. He just, he's that just it? like, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's being challenged by Jamal Bowman, who is this younger, progressive black uh, school principal. And it's fascinating because uh, Engel, it turns out, took all this money from these like right wing Republican organizations and um, was also her dropping some very interesting words on a hot mic. And then we'll get to how on top of this sucking, there's more sucking because OG punk rocker, as you called her, I think you said there was something punk about her, but Hillary Clinton without any political pressure, right? The woman's not running for office. She decided to contribute to the political discourse and um, endorsement scene by endorsing Elliot Engel over this younger progressive challenger. And we'll get into that a little bit, but first to just set up the first level of sucking, let's play a video of Elliot Engel, who's trying to speak at an event about the uh, about unrest on police brutality, and it's very interesting why he's trying to speak. You'll see. Please bear with me. I'll, an- I'll announce everybody. I appreciate you coming, but it, 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 then, it, then I got it. Then go down the list, and it's just too many folks here. If I, had, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. Say that again. If I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. No, that, no, don't do that to me. We're not going to do this. We're not going to politicize this. Everybody has a primary. You know. I'm sorry. Why would you say that out loud? Because he didn't realize it was out loud. I guess. I mean, he didn't realize he was mic'd or being recorded. This is America. I know it's true. Yeah. And so there are a couple of things I want to say about this. Now, this may be surprising, especially because I really don't like Engel. He's on the um, he's terrible. He's a hawk. He's on the um, Foreign Affairs Committee. He's been bad on Iran. He really didn't like Obama's Iran deal. And he's his primary is coming up on June 23rd. But I have to say something. This is kind of weird. I kind of feel like this was not taken out of context, but yeah, a little taken out of context. Now, what he's saying is he wants to speak at this um, press conference uh, about the protests. And that's and then he says, I wouldn't care. I didn't if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care, which sucks. But that's kind of your general level of sucking politicians. Mm. Like 
people were making it seem like he was saying he didn't care about the issue. Now, he probably doesn't care about the issue, but it's slightly different. Maybe this is too small of a, a point, but and I can't believe I'm almost undermining my own Democrats suck. This is like, but but there's so many levels to this. So this is just like level one Democrats suck, though not quite as much as some are saying. But don't worry, we're going to get to why he sucks on so many other, for so many other reasons. I'm just saying that saying if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care about speaking is different from saying if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care about police violence. Right. Okay. Is that is that a weird like not to damn him with faint praise? Um, yeah, no, but I just think it's a it's minor just, you know, I I, th- I guess the other one is just I don't like when people say things that, oh, my God, sounds so self-righteous. Forget I said that. I, I think it's important, although it's probably not really good propaganda and I should just shut up. But because I believe in political propaganda. But I love it. Uh, this is a Katie Halperism that I love what? is what is when you, you you doubt yourself multiple times uh, in this in the space of the same sentence like yeah. you, you you raise a, a, a concern uh, directed at yourself and then right. you raise a concern about that and then there's about a third one right yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of well, awesome yeah, yeah thank you it's <laughs> a very um it's a rejection of the uh, patriarchal linear narrative right yes uh, yeah sorry. it's very virginia wolfian um but here's the the next level of of democrats suck is that hillary clinton comes out to endorse this guy and there's absolutely no reason to endorse him like, right. why would you endorse him? And what's interesting is that it's a reminder of how all these people said that it was easy for Hillary. It was easy. They said this in 2016. It's easy to be progressive when you're a straight white man. You know, it's easy for Bernie to take the right position on something. It's easy for him. Easy for him. It's harder when you're a woman. It's like, this is just an example. Like, okay, let the records show Hillary Clinton is not progressive. There are no, like, there's no tactical advantage for her. There's no political pressure on her to endorse the corrupt um, incumbent who also lied about where he was quarantining and uh, is a hawk and bad. And all of her kind of, you know, social justice, intersectional, pseudo, you know, weaponization, genuine weaponization of identity politics is just a joke. It's a joke. It's like you're not endorsing the young black. Well, it's not it's not a joke. It makes sense because you're not progressive, but you also don't care that much about identity politics. And it's just such a. Well, she does care about it. Well, she doesn't care about it. She cares about using them. Right. Exactly. Um, And I have to say, Elizabeth Warren, who people may know, I am is she's on notice. Why not? Because I she didn't support Sanders Uh and she lied about him and called him a liar. Right. Um, yes, that I'm, whole thing. Yeah, that whole thing. And I wonder if she could have helped him get elected. But she endorsed Bowman. And I remember lots of I would often say in 2016 that like, no, Hillary Clinton not being that progressive is not just because of her gender. You can't like reduce someone to their gender. Yes, Hillary Clinton faces more faces double standards that a man doesn't face. But look at Elizabeth Warren. This was pre 2020 Elizabeth Warren. And Elizabeth Warren is more progressive and she's also a woman. So as much as I hate giving Elizabeth Warren credit for anything, I will say she's much better than Hillary Clinton and she did endorse Bowman, but I almost appreciate that Hillary endorsed Engel because she's just like, she doesn't care. She doesn't even pretend to be progressive or woke anymore. She just has like New York city connections and New York state connections to this guy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm already on the, 
Hillary Clinton as as punk performance art thing. Okay. I, I'm I'm, I'm kind of down with it. Yeah, I know. And that, you know, I really just undermine all of my Democrats suck. But it's like I, uh, for me, when I was a kid, I, I, I was a Bjorn Borg fan. I didn't like John McEnroe. I thought he was a brat. Uh, and now I love John McEnroe because like he just didn't give a, he didn't care and he went into Wimbledon and all these people in their fancy clothes and acted like a complete asshole and really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm starting to have that kind of same feeling about Hillary Clinton. I mean, not that I like her, but, but right. it's, it's, but it's she's, a spectacle. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, she is good at spectacle. And everyone was laughing and making fun of her. And um, so it's Democrats suck. Democrats yep. are going to Democrats. Hillary Clinton's going to Hillary Clinton. Yep. So that was, that was Democrats suck for Republicans suck. Uh, we got Operation Incinerator, which sounds ominous by itself. Dan, if we could open up the news story, Trump supporters burn Michigan absentee ballot applications. So Basically, I'll just read from the, from the lead here. Uh, Walker, Michigan, people burn letters informing them that they can vote by absentee ballot in future elections during a protest near Grand Rapids. The applications were burned Friday during an event called Operation Incinerator outside the Deltaplex Arena in Walker. Many people had flags, shirts, and signs showing support for President Donald Trump and Republicans. Uh, for them just to issue them without merit, without request to absolutely everybody, this is a great waste of taxpayer money, said Michael Farage, nice last name, yeah. president of Grand Rapids Taxpayer Association. So basically, uh, it's people pissed off that there's going to be that absentee uh, applications for absentee ballots were mailed to folks. They oppose enfranchisement, basically. Right. I don't, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. It's kind of obvious on its face that this is just a douchey thing to do. And, and, the, and the name uh, Operation Incinerator is, it, it's, it conjures a whole bunch of stuff that's not terribly awesome. So, um, all right, what do we have for Isn't That Weird? So for Isn't That Weird, we have a, a tale as old as time. Tale. Um, and I'm reading from DCist. So 65 pound alligator snapping turtle named Lord Fairfax found wandering in Alexandria. When future civilizations scour the historical events of 2020 for signs of a coming collapse, they'll have quite a list to draw from. On that list will be the day that a 65 pound alligator snapping turtle was discovered lumbering around a residential neighborhood in Alexandria. Tell me this maw doesn't look to you like a harbinger of doom. Can we see the maw? Yeah, can we play this? Can we see that tweet? Look how cute that is. It looks like an elephant. Cute is not the word that comes to I mind. I think it's cute. I think it's cute. Yeah, would you think it was cute if it was biting through your femur? No, but there, <laughs> there's nothing I would find cute if biting through my femur. <laughs> That's true. I have very low femur biting uh, tolerance uh, in terms of cuteness factor. But look at uh, Jer someone who goes by Jeremy Bentham on Twitter posted a, an interesting side by side. Uh, Dan, can you do you see that? So I, I got to say something, though. Uh -huh. This is almost like an isn't that terrible because McConnell looks like a turtle. Mitch McConnell, but not this turtle. Yeah. So this is a side by side of Mitch McConnell and this this looks like a pig face. I'm gonna call this a pig face turtle. Uh-huh. Doesn't it look like a pig, elephant pig, turtle genre, uh hybrid? He's not like a man bear pig from some <laughs> south from South Park. Right? I don't even yeah. know that, but I like it already. That's not the type of turtle he looks like. And I feel like they're undermining the turtleification of Mitch McConnell, which is so often appropriate by just being very sloppy. And every time you say that he looks like a turtle, he doesn't look like 
a genre, a genre of turtle he doesn't look like, you're weakening the he looks like a turtle argument. I, yeah, I think you're right. I, right? I always I always found Mitch McConnell looks more like a nun to me than a turtle, but... Yeah, he looks uh, like a nun. Mar- he kind of looks like a nun made out of marshmallows. <laughs> Marshmallow nun? <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like yeah. that. That's good. Uh, I, li- I like this animal. I do like me this animal. It's not... I, I mean, again, cute is not the word I would use, but... Ugly cute. Ugly cute. Like, I, I would be very happy to sit all day long watching videos of that animal biting through rebar or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, like rather than read the news or, right. Or do pretty much anything. I, I, I could do that for, for a long time. That's, that's a, that's a cool animal. I love how it's, it's got leaves on its head and it, so it doesn't, cute. doesn't care. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't care. And there's, Oh, it's really cute. It looks like a toadstool kind of, there's a lot going on. And, and it's a happy story because on uh, just to return to the DCS article on June 11th, the Virginia department of game and inland fisheries or DGIF, um, posted, <laughs> posted on its Facebook account about the giant turtle, which handlers aptly named Lord Fairfax. DGIF received a call from Fairfax Animal Control about the animal hanging out around a residential pond. Quote, right. although the threat to humans was minimal, the animal would have most likely experienced a slow death as a result of either freezing or starvation, DGIF wrote in its post. The alligator snapping turtle is not native to Virginia, and would not easily survive in this habitat, instead coming from rivers that flow into the Gulf of Mexico, east to Georgia and the Florida Panhandle, and west to east Texas, per DGIF. Virginia so, does have native common snapping turtles, which are a quarter the size of an alligator snapping turtle. Okay, so uh, isn't that terrible? Um, this actually isn't that terrible, but it's just, it's it's kind of, it, it's an interesting metaphor for sort of life right now. Uh, Dan, if we could take up the, uh, see the article, Cape Cod, uh, Cape Cod lifeguards fear, quote, catastrophe from enforcing coronavirus social distancing while watching for sharks. We have a lot of sharks in this show. I hate sharks. That's right. You do hate sharks. You want to kill sharks, right? Kind of. I've give, I've relented on cats. I'm okay with cats. And I know killing sharks would mess up the ecosystem. But honestly, where do you, you have to take a stand somewhere. Right. So again, the story is Cape Cod lifeguards uh, fear, quote, catastrophe from enforcing coronavirus social distancing while watching for sharks. And it says soon to be bustling Cape Cod is bracing for a very different summer atmosphere, reopening from closures over the coronavirus as some lifeguards warn of danger ahead. Among the concerns, enforcing social distancing rules and mask requirements, which were never previously in their job descriptions, while continuing to save lives and watch out for sharks. Quote, I'm concerned with how it will play out, uh, unquote, Jody Craven, the head of Lifeguard and Wellfleet, a Massachusetts beach town, told the Cape Cod Times, I don't want to be the person who has to enforce common sense laws that in the past haven't been my thing to enforce. So basically, here's our existential dilemma. We either have enough manpower to, uh, to prevent people from killing each other by being too close to each other from, right. in a time of pandemic, or we can watch out for great white sharks that um, have frequently shown up in Cape Cod. And in, in fact, uh, Kate ate a, a body border two years ago. So this is where we're it's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. We're stuck between 
coronavirus and sharks and you know i just thought that was an inter- interesting ter- terrible situation and yeah it's almost and, like and a, a metaphor would, for would something rather it's a would right. you rather it's a sophie's choice it's a sophie's choice exactly yeah um, it's a it's a jody's choice right yeah you're right it's, it's, yeah. it's a craven jody's choice that's right that's right Jody craven Jody we Craven's live in a choice. craven world where someone's fo- forced to make a Jody's choice. I mean, this is why I'm going to return to my thesis that sharks maybe should be gotten rid of because it's not just about sharks and humans anymore. It's a much, you know, COVID has really raised this up. It's It's been notched up. Mm. Uh, we no longer have the luxury of, <laughs> of not killing sharks. This is, a, <laughs> this is a public health issue. And I'm not going to condemn body borders and uh, lifeguards, college age lifeguards, especially to death because of people being squeamish about just, you know, snuff, shark snuffing. And I say that because, did you read this part already? I forget, Craven said college age lifeguards will have to split their time between eyeing for sharks and regulating beachgoers on the shore. I feel like we're destined for some sort of catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. you read the part. Sorry, and I also, didn't read. I didn't read it out loud. Oh, but God, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Massachusetts has seen over ninety-one thousand cases of COVID, and over six thousand people have died. Um, but then the other thing is that, and this is why I think we got to go with shark aside. Um, as you mentioned, there was one eating, one shark eating of a body border two years ago, but um, just last summer there were dozens of great white sharks so mm-hmm. so uh yeah so that so that sucks and that's 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 our our lives right now it's uh, it's it's uh, sh- sharks sharks are virus so so great uh okay so that was uh, the four food groups what do, what do we what do we what do we want to talk about this is just funny i don't know when it's from but honestly i couldn't i didn't know there were no stone moments so you know charlie cook kirk charlie kirk he's from turning point usa this really weird um right wing libertarian group Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I, I don't know find- it. Charlie Kirk is uh, he's on Fox News all the time. And, you know, this guy, Mark Le- Levin, Mark Levin. Mm-hmm. Yes. Vaguely. A, yeah. So I wanted to just watch this video, but I don't know if I should give away. This is kind of pathetic. I'm, I'm just trying to share what I think is a very funny observation that I made on Twitter. But I kind of think you'd like it. Let's watch the video and then I'll make my comment and then we can see if you agree to have the opposition party go full Rousseauian Marxist. I'm so glad you mentioned Rousseau because that he was the gateway to Karl Marx. And Plato was really the gateway to Rousseau. And what the big conversation is... You're it, well read, the Republic and so forth. Good. Thank you. And Aristotle and Plato, who of course was the, the age-old student and teacher dynamic, of course, Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle. But Aristotle disagreed with Plato on one fundamental thing. He disagreed on a lot which is, is private property a good thing or a bad thing? Plato said, bad thing, get rid of private, get rid of private property. Plato also argued against the nuclear family. Aristotle said, no, I actually, I think private property serves a role. I think that if you try to take people's stuff away, all of a sudden you're gonna take away their meaning and their ability to pass on wealth and ideas to the next generation. This divide between Aristotle and Plato is playing out today in our politics. I don't know why this is stupid, but I just, I. He he looked very aroused, Mark Levin, and he's like, "Wow, you know your stuff. You're ooh, you're smart." The Republic. It stuff. did. It had it had like the first. It had like the earmarks of the first minute of a porn scene. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, 
And now, you know now, what? You look a little tense. Maybe I should give you a back rub. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, let's talk over over uh, chat about Plato and Socrates. But do you work out? How, how tall are you? <laughs> what I immediately thought though was that after he said that he looked very excited after he said the role of private property, and then he crossed his legs in a way that I I theorized was an a boner obfuscation, which could have been. I, could have been right. But can we just watch it? From from 35 seconds to the end, just imagine my theory, which is that he gets aroused by his talking about private property. And Plato is really the gateway to Rousseau. And what the big conversation is... You're well-read, the Republic and so forth. Good. Thank you. And Aristotle and Plato, <laughs> who, of course, was the, the age-old student and teacher dynamic. Of course, Socrates taught Plato. Plato taught Schwing. Aristotle. But Aristotle disagreed with Plato on one fundamental thing. He disagreed on a lot. <laughs> which is, is private property a good thing or a bad thing? Plato said, bad thing, get rid of private get rid of private property. Plato also argued against the nuclear family. Aristotle said, no, actually, I think private property serves a role. I think that if you try to take people's oh. stuff away, all of a sudden you're gonna take away their meaning and their ability to pass on wealth and ideas to the next generation. This divide between Aristotle and Plato is playing out today in our politics. See, I'm so glad. I've I'm so glad I believed in myself. I really hope some enterprising uh, porn director uh, can, can 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 make a parody. Yeah. Like of, of this scene. I mean, can you, know? you make a parody? It's already there, but yeah. I mean, sure. it would be, you know, foxooze.com, something yeah. like that, right? It oh, be, I like, wow, that's good, yeah. Right? It would be, it would be fo foxy, new, foxy News. That's, Fox, yeah. Foxy News, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I, I just have this image of, you know all these these uh, these scenes that begin with dudes and men in the seventy uh, fifth percentile most expensive men's warehouse suits, yeah. uh, which is like the standard Fox News costume, uh, getting together and they're they're waxing poetic about uh, you know Burke and Adam Smith yeah. and you know but and that's that's the first fifty five seconds of the scene yeah and then then like by mi one minute and twenty there it's it's just full on <laughs> Socratic method, if you will. So yeah, exactly. Let's get some really s serious Socratic method. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me again about the role of property. Yeah, exactly. yeah. The role of private, pro of, of private property. Did you say private property? Property, is, private yeah. property. Yeah. Say it again. Yeah. Say it again. <laughs> Look at how, yeah, it's like, yeah, this is great. I'm so glad this resonated so much with people. That is funny, Katie. That, that you've, you've really you you stumbled onto something here. I think right? that might that might be a thing, like the the, the porniest uh, Fox scene uh, yeah. of the week. Yeah, look at that. Look at the the bend, the the covering, the the, the boner cover up. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, well, he didn't he didn't drop the 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 um the clipboard on the lap. That's that's where right. you go, and it, well, that's the DefCon Five move. Is that a boner obfuscation tactic, or absolutely? It is. Okay, okay, good. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Typically, you're seeing it in in uh, seventh grade. Yeah, no, I I, I think we should. Uh, pour in the news. Yeah, like pour in the news. Like, what's the hot and heaviest scene that we that we right. saw this week? And then we can we we speculate about you know from from a from a screenwriting point of view where does it go from here right like I, I I like I like that concept too. Imagine how much people could learn if their pornography, which is a weird word, if porn were infused with um less historic infused. infused with <laughs> history lessons. 
Or science lessons. I mean, I don't know. Right. All right, we're going to learn this week. We're going to learn about the Bataan Death March. Uh, yeah. And, and, like and maybe, here's how it started. <laughs> well, maybe you could learn what that actually works pretty well. But what about Frida Kahlo and Trotsky, right? That's a real relationship. I mean, that's very, that's easy. That's shooting fish in a barrel because they actually had an affair. But that's yeah. just a very easy way of doing it. Molotov, Ribbentrop. I think that would have been a good that one. That would, yeah. Yeah. Right? A lot of back and forth. Push yeah, where they, they, they're kind of stroking each other's collars and then just all of a sudden, you know, right. the sparks, sparks fly yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that could have been But it would be one. very unexpected. That would be right. the Molotov, that, that, um. Quick and brutish. Yeah, yeah, but also like out of nowhere, like they hate each other with a passion. Right, right, exactly. They're looking they're askance at one yeah. another. Suddenly they're, and then they start wrestling. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then, you know, feelings swing. And two two bodies become one. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, boy, could that be funny. And also, listeners and and watchers of Useful Idiots, if you see a scene on television that you think something else is going on, yeah there uh we right. we we want to we want to hear that from yeah. you all right well uh now i don't really want to talk about anything porn else in the news porn in the news maybe we call it that, that yeah porning uh, in america good porning america good porning america that's it that's it here we go yeah so we are so excited to have joining us someone who we've really wanted to have on for a while Brother Dr. Cornell West. Uh, as people probably know, Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West is he's Harvard University professor of the practice of public philosophy, and as of very recently, the co-host of the Tightrope podcast, which uh, he hosts along with uh, Trisha Rose, a professor at Brown University. And it's very good. I've listened, by the way. I've listened to it. It's good. It's a great vibe. One of the things that I'm really looking forward to about interviewing Cornell West is. Um, the litany of people he'll mention because name, name drop factor. Yeah. But I don't want to say name drop because that sounds like it's kind of like schmoozy or like showing off, which it isn't. I just think he has a major intellectual roster of characters who, uh, because he's so learned and in so many disciplines ranging from music to, you know, history to political science to philosophy. Uh, so you got, I'm going to make some predictions. Ready? Okay. John Coltrane. Okay. Um, Joshua Heschel. Okay. Edward Sa- Edward Said. Nice. All right. Um, Bernard, obviously, brother Bernard. Well, right. Saint Bernard. Um, Nina Turner, maybe Rokana, but I don't think so. I'm definitely. I'm feeling very, very. Is he uh, the only Bernard, by the way? I mean, what Bernard about- Shaw, George Bernard? What? Uh, I don't know. Is he the only Bernard? Uh, Richard Pryor or Muhammad Ali? Right. Malcolm X, Martin, maybe Martin and Malcolm, he'll call him by those names. Um, maybe Billy Holiday, and um, it would be so cool if he mentioned Abel Mirapol, who wrote Strange Fruit. Aristotle, Socrates, right. Jesus Christ, Muhammad, maybe. Jesus Christ, always a good one. Yeah, quotable. always a good one. Yeah, very quotable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who I think if we let if we let it be known somehow that we're, that we were encouraging it no 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 that we're, what our ethnic background is I guarantee uh-huh. that like if you say you're Irish then we're gonna hear about like Michael Collins or someone I don't know enough about I, I want to I want to know what great Filipino authors he's gonna he's gonna right. drop yes yeah uh, right I don't even know I don't know I don't yeah <laughs> yeah um and yeah so he already does Joshua Heschel so but I'm gonna try to. 
Yeah. That's interesting. That's a good one. We should almost have a clicker. Do we have, do we have, can we get something on screen that clicks like that has a little number? That's a good idea. We could probably Dan, do it Dan, can, can that be done? Yeah. All right. So without right. further ado, let's, let's, uh, let's interview Dr. Cornell. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been Thank wanting you. to have you on for a while um, since the beginning and um, wanted to ask you about there's so much to talk about and there's so many heavy, heavy, tragic and um, scary, but also inspiring stories. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you first about, because you just launched a new podcast, what made you do that? And um, it's great. I listened to it. I really like it. But what uh, inspired you to do that? Oh, I first want to just salute both of you. Both of you are such forces for good and such sources of tremendous insight. And you just enact a kind of... Uh, moral courage that is a, that's so necessary these days. So it's a blessing to be on the show and I look forward to it. And it's true that Trisha Rose, you know, the towering Trisha Rose, the pioneering scholar of hip hop, distinguished professor at Brown University, that she and I have a, a new podcast called The Tightrope. And uh, we're going to have you all on, actually, to tell you the truth. Anytime. But uh, we have a good time. And what all we're trying to do is just to provide a site that where you have some high quality reflection about the social misery, both here and around the world and the various forms of resistance and critique uh, to that social misery. But we also spend a lot of time with the musicians, you know, from Bootsy Collins to Lecrae to Rhapsody and so forth. So that for us, you know, the arts in all of its forms ought to be uh, uh, integral to any serious talk about resistance and critique when it comes to the social misery that we're trying to, attend to be it police murder, economic exploitation of workplace, patriarchal violence, the devaluing of precious trans or gays or lesbians or whatever form that suffering and social misery takes. And we're having a good time. We are, we got Brother Jeremy, Sister Allie, and, uh, and the others working with us. And uh, we learn a lot from you all. I tell you that. It's been one year now, right? One yeah, year. Yeah, one year in August, it'll be, yeah. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, you make such a good combination, and Trisha and I make a wonderful combination. Yeah, I love your vibe. I love it. It's like, it's it's intellectual, but very accessible. It's not formal or stuffy. It's really, it's like very joyful, even though you're talking about very serious things. And I love, it's very it's very funny, too. You guys have, oh, no, have a no, very no, funny, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You were kind. I appreciate yeah. that. No, it's great. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, indeed. For humor, it's kind of a it's a strange time, right? I mean, it's a there isn't a whole lot of that in in media these days, and especially in political media. What do you think that's all about? Because that is that is something that's been very notable with you always. You've always had a great sense of humor, but I, I don't see it so much. In, no, we've in actually in others. We plan to reach out to Brother David Chappelle. You know, he's one of the great uh, artistic geniuses when it comes to comedy. But you notice his recent eight forty six. He even held off on the jokes. He held back from the humor. But I think that humor is always a fundamental part of whatever the human situation is. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we had our Jewish brothers and sisters in the most indescribably evil situation uh, in the Holocaust, and they had jokes in concentration camps, which meant that they didn't allow the Nazis to suffocate their humanity, even though they were trying to do that. And jokes, humor, grin, touch, uh, um, sound, noise, music, all of these are the most primal forms human beings have 
of objectifying their grief and not allowing their grief to completely suffocate what it is to be human for them. And therefore, I hope that the, uh, the comics take off. You know, I mean, Richard Pryor, in the 1960s, that genius, he has some funny things to say right in the midst of catastrophe. Yeah, and it's, so, it's such a truth-telling tool also. Um, Absolutely. And it reaches people, I think, in a way that in these dark times, I mean, it is a way to reach, cut through stuff because people just don't want to hear something that's very... It's not that, that using the comedy to talk about serious things, it doesn't make light of it, but it just kind of makes it... It's in a different form, so people are more willing to hear it. They're more open to hearing it. They kind of seek it out more, but you're also... Resist, it is resistance, maybe. That's Hopefully, so yeah. true. And I think, too, you know, we Americans, we are such a profoundly anti-intellectual culture. So that if you try out the isms, you're only going to speak to a small slice. You know, right. you, if you try out just the arguments, you're going to speak to a small slice. But if you can connect the insight, wisdom, and analysis in a humorous discourse, there is a way in which it gets beneath. And so there's something positive about it. The negative thing about it is the anti-intellectual impulse becomes such a dumbing down that people don't want to think critically, even in the form of the music, the humor, all the other forms of weaponry that are available to human beings that don't ascend to an abstract level of discourse, you see. And so we have to really understand the specificity of U.S. culture. You see, America is a business culture. It's a market culture. And it's hungry for titillation and stimulation. But if you can tuck into that stimulation and titillation, some, some real caring and nurturing, that's what our great artists have been able to do. We talk about prior, but if we could talk about, look at Sondheim. Sondheim is an intellectual, but he couches it in a form that touches all of us. That's part of his genius. Louis Armstrong did the same thing. I mean, our, our artists do the same thing. So we have to, um, Prince and I used to talk about this all the time because Prince would just read all the time. You know, we celebrating his birthday. Yeah, One of my favorites, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I miss him. I used to travel all around the country and the world with him to Montreux and other places. We had long, long dialogues at Paisley Park. And uh, he walked around with his books, his Jehovah Witness reading, John Henry Clark reading, is it true that the Hebrew scripture got African people in it in relation to my faith? Da, 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 da. We'd have a good time. But, in, but he knew that his vocation mm. was one of a geniality, which is the real root of genius, which is the largeness of heart, mind, and soul that then pours out into others and touches others. That's part of the genius of American culture really, even given all the limitations and all of the parochialism that goes along with the culture. And we got something to celebrate in terms of being able to, to try out those kind of figures. But, uh, you know, we're not going to produce no Tolstoy's or full bears or, or Beethoven's. That's, that's, that's not the USA. Ooh, it, not at all. You reminded me when you said the, the humor in the Holocaust, uh, it reminded me of, and I'm as a secular lefty Jew myself, I identify with that tradition. Uh, Larry David, some of the, my favorite episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm are, are Holocaust related. Um, and it's just, yeah, they're very controversial, but they're funny and they're 
a, way, a coping mechanism too. Uh, absolutely, no, indeed. I tell you, you know, we, we, we need a long, long series of deep reflections on the depths and richness of the secular Jewish culture that came from the old world into Brooklyn and the Bronx and other places that held on to the Hesed, the unbelievable attempt to engage in the Takuna Luna, mending and changing of the world, motivated by compassion for the least of these orphans and widows and fatherless and motherless, but was profoundly secular, so it tied to a high culture. You see, it was always Dostoevsky and Tolstoy sitting in the background, the background of secular Jewish culture, you see, right. Jostakovich and others, but very street, too. You see that in the Saul Bellow novels of mm -hmm. Herzog. You see that in right. Audie Mark. That is uh, this very centered on ideas, but it's tied to the street tied to the temple and the unbelievable intensity of street life. And you get this wonderful hybrid, highbrow culture, street culture coming out of the ghetto, Montreal, Chicago, New York. We can go to Mailer, we can go to Malamud, we can go to Philip Roth coming out of Newark, New Jersey, not the ghetto, though, but the middle class Newark, New Jersey. We say, hmm, dang, this is interesting. You see, we got black ghettos, too. Y'all got Jewish ghettos, too. We got a tie to high culture, too. But we also rooted to the street, too. And you can begin to see some of the elective affinities and commonality, but very, very different, you know, historical backdrops. Because uh, you got 2,000 years with people tied to the text. You're on a high level of literacy, tremendous investment in interpretation and textual comment commentary because it defines the very identity. Your very identity as a people is rooted in textual commentary. See, that's not true for black folk. Mm. Most of us couldn't even learn how to read till the 1860s, so it's a very different trajectory, but very deep, similar uh, uh, affinities in terms of uh, the, the connections of being improvisational, high by a low brow, a tremendous intellectual curiosity. I'm sorry to go on and on. No, 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 that's great. Yeah, it's great. We talked about this with Nina Turner, too. The black is that right? connection, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's rich. That's rich. That's rich. No, indeed. The, the last time I saw you in person was a year and a half ago in Burlington when uh, just before Bernie was going to launch his presidential campaign and it seems like it was a million years ago but it really wasn't was that, that the long. one in like the november december or december something like that? yeah that's the yes. sanders institute sanders yeah. institute yes i remember that yeah and and there was so much um i remember there was so much enthusiasm and a sense of this time around uh all the forces are lining up this is this is has a really good shot, and you were there, and you spoke, very, uh, you know, very pointedly and very heartfelt in a very heartfelt way about about the Sanders campaign and about Bernie. Well, it wasn't a campaign yet, but so much has happened in the interim. He was on the cusp, really. It looked like for a moment there of winning, and it all fell apart. I was wondering what your analysis is of what happened, uh, and if you wanted to get into that at all. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a fascinating moment for me there in Burlington because I hadn't seen Brother Bernie in a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and I had, had this, you know, disagreement about my going for Sister Jill Stein and he going for Sister Hillary Clinton. And uh, I had connected, of course, with Brother Nick, who was talking about a movement for a third party. We were there at the founding conference in Washington, D.C. And uh, Brother Bernie and I always have this kind of tacit uh, agreement because we, we really are brothers so our politics don't define fully 
our relationship. You know, he'll always be my brother, even when he's wrong or when he's right. I'll be his brother even when he thinks I'm wrong or when right. I'm right. But I hadn't seen him in a while. So you remember even my talk when I told him, I said, even though we disagree, Mm-hmm. Because I was not going to run around the country and, and talk about how wonderful Hillary was, uh, uh, even given the fact that, you know, certain swing states, I can understand people voting for her. Just like right now with Biden, I think we got to vote swing states for Biden to get the fast and neo-fascists out of there. But at the same time, you don't run around and tell everybody how great Biden is when we know just how tied he is to deep structures of domination and policies that, that promote social misery. So that the... Uh, uh, so at that moment, it was, it was a rich one for me because we, we were the coming together. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we hugged each other. We hadn't seen each other for so long, remember that. Mm-hmm. even given the disagreements, you see. So when he decided to run again, he gave me a call. I said, yeah, you know, green light ahead. I, I got the same views. And I tried to put some pressure on him in terms of the Middle East and Israeli occupation and saying more about uh, Yemen, which he did with, with, with yeah, Roe. And similarly, so with Kashmir and Tibet, you know, any any occupied people, we have to hit it head on. And uh, and he's always been open to that. He's always been open to that. But I knew I was going to go with him because uh, when it comes to the uh, decrepit state of a U.S. electoral political uh, system, that he was the best and remains the best. But you now, given his competition, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to be better than most U.S. politicians. Right. I, mean, I just keep reminding him of that. You know what I mean? This the bar is not isn't win- that high. Right. That's right. This is not Wednesday night at right. the Apollo. <laughs> <laughs> you got to bring your A game or you going right. under. No, 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 no. This is Monday morning, you know, so that you win the Monday morning prize at the Apollo. It's like, okay, okay, you do it all right. You do it all right. And that's the way it is in U.S. politics. You know, you're not going to have the best folk there. It just is what it is. He fell out laughing. I said, I'm telling you the truth, Brother Bernie. But I was glad you did do it. I must have done 112 events and things. With wow. Would do it again. Would do it again very much so. I just think that the, the neoliberal uh, establishment, Democratic Party, came together, exemplified a level of unity, and um, defeated us. They crushed us. You know, just overnight, you know, Obama makes his call. Brother Pete, Sister Amy, they come together so quick overnight. Pow! Anybody but Bernie. Anybody but Bernie. You say, ooh, boy, this is the last gasp, we hope, of these neoliberal folk coming together like this. And we're going to see, you know, what happens. We're going to see what happens in the election. It's going to be a very... uh I think it's going to be close. Do you, do you think they did that? I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you think? Do you mm-hmm. think they? Do you think they did that because they sincerely think that this is a strategy that's going to more likely to win, or do you think this is ideological? Ideological that they they saw it as a necessity to prevent the Sanders brand of politics, the one that you promoted. Uh, so much from succeeding at any cost. Oh, okay, yeah. See, I think it was a combination of both. Mm-hmm. I think that they falsely believed that Bernie had no chance at all in beating Trump because their worldview is so truncated and their world itself is so limited that they could not see a ground swelling for Bernie vis-a-vis Trump. So that they so that they falsely believe that 
But the other side, which I think probably even has more weight than gravity, to tell you the truth, is that they knew that if Bernie got the nomination, their donors, their benefactors, their big money people would turn away. And many of them would go for Trump rather than for Bernie because he's going at their entrenched interest in a serious manner. I mean, look at Brother Clyburn. You know, Brother Clyburn gets more money than anybody in Congress from big pharmaceutical companies. Now, if Bernie wins, how is Clyburn going to work that out? Now, he can act as black as he wants to Monday through the next Monday. <laughs> but that's not going to be enough because you got black people like other working poor people who want health care and want it for everybody. So that tension would become so undeniably manifest that hypocrisy would become so undeniably manifest that that's true for the neoliberals across the board. So you had both elements, I think. I think it's this false belief that Bernie couldn't win, therefore we had to be practical and all the talk about electability. And the, the second one was, oh, the ruling class in the financial sector would undergo such transformation. It would look as if there were no Democratic Party at all without that big money behind it. Right. I mean, what was, if if Bernie had won the nomination, you'd immediately see like all these sinecures would evaporate, all these positions in Washington, the, That's right. the, 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 the all bureaucracies would be transformed immediately. People would be put out of jobs they've had for a long time. Well, no. That's how, right. How, how, how big of a factor do you think that was in all this? I think in the end, that was probably the biggest one. I really do. It was the biggest one because, I mean, what Bernie represented, and sometimes it was not always intentional because Bernie himself, I think, has an ambivalence about his relation yeah. to the neoliberal wing of the ruling class in, 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 in our society that, in principle, he has a very heartfelt critique and his movement is over against the democratic neoliberal establishment. Uh, at the same time, He's been in Congress for so long that his world has been shaped by having some alliance and coalition with the neoliberal ruling class of the country that he has a connection and he does not mind belonging. Mm. You know, he's not obsessed with it, but he doesn't mind belonging. It, that's a that's a that's something that yeah. I heard. Uh, you know, I did a couple of stories about the the campaign, and I heard a lot of. So current and former Sanders staffers make that exact point that Bernie, for all the propaganda about him being this radical who was going to overturn the system, he actually really saw himself as a member of the system and, and believes in it in a way that's, you know, at, at the core of his self-image. He sort of deeply believes in the, the whole system of, uh, you know, how laws get passed in the House and uh, he's very impressed with that structure. Do you think that they misunderstood that there was a misunderstanding of how radical Sanders is? And, and was that a difference that you and he had, by the way? Well, it, it, it was a slight difference because, I mean, I, I do believe that you have to be jazz like an improvisational and always have an inside outside strategy. Mm -hmm. And I like his inside outside strategy. A lot of times it has, it should have a little bit more dance in it. Uh, and what I mean by dance in it, you got to be able to move quickly. You know what I mean? 
You can't be flat-footed at all. You can't get caught in one stance too long. You can't be stationary and static for too long. Whereas I think Bernie, given his history, you know, he was just lucky to get included at all as an independent. Mm-hmm. See, that's why his relation to Biden yeah. is something that, you know, many of us, you know, both understand but would never be part of it. You see, you know, he, he could run around talking about how wonderful Biden is. He's a decent man. He, he embraced me, he and Jane, and my, me and Jane and his wife could go off and socialize and have these wonderful times. I said, hey, you know, I appreciate, you know, sensitivity to people's humanity. I don't want to be reductionist about these relationships. But, you know, Biden is still Biden. And let us be very clear about that in terms of architecting the largest prison system in the history of the modern world geared at poor people disproportionately chocolate or a war there's a war of a crime against humanity more than a half million iraqis killed each life precious he can't say hardly a mumbling word about it and brags about it for so long up until a few years ago you know those for me that that is the uh, so much of the uh, uh, the ugliness and the callousness of the neoliberal uh, 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 project you see that it just turns its back on these vicious policies and then brings in some black folk and some women and some gays and lesbians. Let's make the class hierarchy much more colorful. And we we want inclusive and we want diversity and so forth and so on. It's that kind of orientation that uh, Bernie's critical of in principle, even though on the ground he's still very much a part of it. And it's understandable given the fact that he's had to deal with that every day of his life over 30 years. It reminds me of a, I always think of it as a, they want to replace, the neoliberals want to replace a top 1% that's straight, white, and male with a diverse top 10%, like a rainbow coalition that's slightly more equitable, but still totally about, um, you know, power and balance. Absolutely. And see, the the imperial hierarchy remains the same. Yeah, exactly. Right. 800 military bases still out there. AFRICOM still operating. You still got the, the policies in the Middle East and Asia and Latin America being promoted. It's just more colorful now. Oh, we've got some black generals now. Right. And they yeah. love to wave that flag just like the white ones do. In fact, they might even be better at it. They got a little rhythm and they wave, you know. You say, oh, I see, I see. That's what we're talking about. Y'all miss Martin King's message. You miss Malcolm's message. You miss Edward Zaid. You miss what Hesha was talking about. All of the great prophetic voices of the past, and none of them are perfect. Don't get me wrong. They all had their challenges too. But at the core of what they were after was not this attempt to uh, downplay the status quo and just fill it up with diversity and inclusion. Right. That was something that they were highly suspicious of, and rightly so. Yeah, I mean, that's been a consistent theme of yours over the years that you can't argue for racial progress without also arguing, for instance, against Wall Street corruption, right? Uh, And that these things have to be tied together and that you have to be suspicious of when you see the one critique without the other or without these other uh, issues tied to it. Um, That's exactly. And even now on the streets, you know, this marvelous, marvelous flow and wave of... uh, our brothers and sisters of all colors, disproportionately younger on the streets. You know, they got to make that connection between police murder, Wall Street crimes, drones, imperial crimes, 
all being part and parcel of a system and politicians of whatever color, for the most part, beholden to the police power, the Wall Street power, and the Pentagon power. And there has to be ways in which we understand this that also accent the uh, what I call the moral and the spiritual dimension of it. Because, you see, part of the... Um, the problem of the American empire, Melville understood this, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald understood this, Tony Morrison, Muriel Rukeyser, they all understood this, that, you know, in a market culture, it saps the best of the human spirit in terms of integrity, honesty, decency, and generosity, and becomes one of manipulation. How to get over, well, what Pat Horst in his classic of 19, minor classic of 1967 called making it you know, making it, you see, so that here, you know, you got on the one hand, you got Chomsky saying, I'm trying to keep the faith, and the faith has to do with looking at the world from below, but you trying to make it, Pothorids, and you're sending that message out, not just to your Jewish community, but to America and the world. It's really about just making it, and making it is all about status, power, position, and looking at the world through the lens of the stock market. And so you end up with very different lens in which you view things. And so the moral and spiritual dimension could be secular. It could be Buddhist like bell hooks. It could be uh, uh, Judaic like Michael Lerner. It could be, you know, uh, uh, it could be Hindu like the legacy of Gandhi, even though you want to embed there because the Dalit, exactly. Dalit brothers and sisters yeah. were never really part of Gandhi's project. Uh, but there's still things that we can learn from, from Gandhi, even given his, his refusal to call for the dismantling of caste. But all of these different traditions have a moral and spiritual dimension. And for young people, it's primarily music. You see, music's the last form of transcendence, really, in the market culture of, the, of, of, of our empire, of the U.S. empire. And so you have to always bring in this role of how do you be a certain kind of person that's fallible, open, humble, but also full of moral tenacity and willing to throw down, willing to live, willing to die. And that's, you know, that's a high level of spiritual development that's hard to achieve in such a decadent uh, market culture of the American empire. It really is. But isn't that also um, a way in to reforming the United States? The United States for all of its flaws, that market culture does allow you to succeed and, and, and broadcast the message if you make great music, if you if you can make great great comedy, great art, it, it will it'll get out of the way and let you let you do it uh, if if it if it has a, a popular appeal. Isn't that kind of a, a bit of a weakness in the American Empire if there is one? Well, it is. It's a beautiful, beautiful aspect of the American Empire. Uh, that's one of the reasons why our, uh, our our culture is hegemonic around the world. You know, hip hop now and jazz hundred years ago, and uh, rhythm and blues fifty years ago, uh, musical theater, and then of course the films and so forth. That the uh, and and even in some ways are, are, are the best of our literature. I think Melville will be read much longer than Flaubert will, for example. Mm -hmm. But See, the challenge here is, and this is where we had to get very, very most serious in some ways sad. See, there's a real chance that the American empire does not have the capacity to be fundamentally transformed. 
Hmm. See, so that it will allow for all of the soft power and culture in the world. Hmm. But when stronger move, movements on the ground actually begin to bring power and pressure to bear, they shoot us down like dogs. Right. It's almost like a the way John Wayne was shooting our indigenous brothers and sisters. The repressive apparatus of the United States is so thick that, I mean, if Prince decided to join up with Malcolm X's legacy and create a movement with his music, he could start off playing a little kiss, then mm -hmm. move on into our door, and then the next day, people were willing to move into D.C. and seize power. Prince is a dead man in America. He's gone. They will kill you in a minute. Now, you can argue everybody does that. Well, yes, but in the United States, there's this illusion that you get all this freedom, the social movements have a right to protest, and so forth and so on. But in the States, oh, the history of black folks especially, anytime you raise issue of white supremacy in a serious way, you're a dead woman or a dead man for the most part. If not, if you're alive, then you get character assassination every day. So that you wonder, you know, Marcuse's one-dimensional society, you wonder whether the American Empire even has the capacity to undergo the kind of nonviolent revolution or any other kind of revolution. It would rather go fascist than go serious uh, left-wing progressive. And see, that's something that we leftists have continually had to contend with. You see, because we just, we say to ourselves, well, God, are we really sure that this thing can change, this, that this place can really undergo a revolution? The Civil War was a revolution, but that's 700,000 people dead. The Civil Rights was not a revolution. It was, it was significant reform. And for the black middle class and the black bourgeoisie, they were breakdancing. Even given the discrimination, they started breakdancing. For the black poor and the black working class, it got worse because their condition was never the measure of black progress. The measure of black progress was offering them on the top. Oh, they're doing wonderful. Oh, you got a black president. You got black professors at Harvard yelling, Princeton, what more do black people want? Oh, my God, you want to just take over everything. Right. And then the, the myth of post-racial society, right? Or didn't even post-racial, you know. So that you know, and you're seeing this today. You know, I call it a uh, a Wizard of Oz moment. It's like Obama. You know, you got this great authority, and then little Toto just pulls that curtain back. See this cat working very little capacity to deliver. Not a whole lot of backbone tied to Wall Street, tied to the counter-terrorist policies of Brennan, dropping the drones, but he's supposed to be some grand culmination of the black freedom struggle. No, no, this is the Wizard of Oz. He has no clothes, no spines at all. We see the same thing at the universities, you know, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. We have such a diverse faculty. You just scratch the, the surface. God, you still had 3.2%. Doesn't sound like you're on the cutting edge of wrestling with the legacy of white supremacy in terms of the presence of of, of black folk at Harvard. Yes, but we got Skip Gates, we got West, we got so forth. Yes, let's just scratch the surface, scratch the surface. What else is beneath? Hardly at all. Hardly at all. Oh, we got, we got black deans. Yes, you do. It's a beautiful thing. What is percentage of your faculty? Mm -hmm. You see, what's the presence of the classes in your curriculum? How many students even take the courses in your curriculum? So that 
I don't want to deny the progress, but as Malcolm used to say, you don't stab folk nine inches, pull it out six inches, and celebrate your progress. No, no, you, you, when you pull the knife out, you don't celebrate because the wound is so deep and the blood is still flowing, you see. And so we say to ourselves, well, what do we do? Back to the blues, back to the musician. Blow your horn, sing your song, write your book, engage in your work and your calling, be part of a collective and social movement, and be ready to die and pass it on to the younger generation. That's, that's the best we can do. You just mentioned something I wanted to ask about. You talked about is you know is the American Empire capable of being transformed? Is there a possibility for the for a nonviolent uh, ethos or revolution to succeed? Now that's uh, there's this, there's some controversy about that now within yeah. the protest community. And I know you've talked in the past about you know making sure that we follow the highest spiritual standards of Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer. And but what's What's your feeling about that? Because it, it, it does feel like there's been a little bit of a sea change within the quote unquote left or liberalism about, about the efficacy of violent or nonviolent protest. I mean, one is that I don't think we should ever be dogmatic about any of these things. See, I, um, I'm not like Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not an absolute pacifist. Mm -hmm. I would have fought against the Nazis. Mm. Even in the Jim Crow Army, I would have fought against a thug named Hitler. I would have fought against the apartheid regime, the spirit of the nation. You see, I would have joined the army. You see, I believe in just war. Franco and Spain. Very, very specific circumstances under which you have to engage in violence, usually tied to both self-defense or tied to an evil regime that is so overwhelmingly objectionable that the only way, the only option that one can pursue would be a violent one, you see. So in that sense, you know, if there were a chance to engage in fundamental transformation and it looked as if violence was the only means and it looked as if the result would not be more terror and more violence and more hatred, I'd be very much a part of that, you see. But you have to have such a mature level of organization. You have to have such a mature level of leaders with vision. And, you know, you can have thugs on the left just like you can have thugs in the center and thugs on the right in terms of their spirits. See, a lot of people that have the same leftist analysis that I have, but I won't spend too much time with them <laughs> because they just, they're not soulful enough for me. <laughs> they ain't got enough love for me, you know what I mean? I said, oh, no, 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 no. So that, uh, uh, so that I'm, I'm in the streets with them because they've got a strong analysis and so forth, but you need to have more than that. But I'm not an absolute pacifist the way Brother Martin was. I've had long discussions with Brother Desmond Tutu on this in South Africa. We almost got killed together at uh, Dedouza, the great, uh, the great moment in Dedouza when the black folk turned on each other. Uh, and I happened to be there with Tutu. And Tutu, you know, he's nonviolent all the way. Not me. I start swinging, goddamn. <laughs> no, no, I got a lot of street in me. A whole lot of street in me. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it seems like the, there's like a conflation, though, also of um, vandalism and violence. I mean, a lot of right. what we've seen has been vandalism, a lot of what's called violent. And I do think that some, there's a shift. A lot of people who in the past would condemn this have said that a lot of the change would not have happened without the vandalism, without the 
like burning the police station without the burning down the Wendy's, even people who, who I think before this happened would have condemned that. I think there's a realization, and Matt, you and I may have a disagreement on this, but I think among some people, there's a realization that this is, um, that this is, does have some efficacy. No, I think you're right. I think that's a very important distinction, though, my dear sister, in terms of vandalism versus violence. I think it was true in the 60s, you know, in Detroit and Newark in 67 and Watts in 65, that you see, again, in a market culture, property has mm. a sanctity. The sanctity of private property, the sanctity of corporate profits as a precondition of your democracy. That's part of the American covenant, you see. And so when they see the property burning, they think of their own property, they think of businesses that they're connected to. And for them, the self and property go hand in hand. So it's almost an, an attack on persons when you attack the properties. And it's, 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 it's amazing, really, that, uh, thank God, you know, there's been so few people, or whoever they are, who, who die, you know, in 67, and we got Newark and... Detroit already, that's almost 75, 80 people who died, both civilians and police. You see, that's a different level of violence. You think you got 2,000 cities and hardly anybody dies. So that's, that's, that's highly extraordinary. And you think about it in America, given the centrality of violence in America, you see. So that the, uh, the, the, the but a lot of people assimilate the vandalism with the violence. And, uh, but I mean, what that does is it allows the, uh, the right wing, the, the neo-fascists to justify to themselves an intense contempt and hatred to be expressed. And so you have the backlash, you have the neo-fascist clampdown. And I still think it's coming. It's probably in the process right now, but I do think it's coming. It almost spilled over with the military turning on on us, on, 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 on citizens there in Washington, D.C. Almost reached that point. Trump was ready to do it, then they began to pull back. But I, I, I think it's still coming. I, I, I think that the, uh, the neo-fascists, you know, they, uh, when you look in their eyes in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, well, these cats, they're serious. There's a level of willingness to die that I wish we had more of on the left. You see, they came with their guns loaded, with their masks, they standing right next to us within 12, almost 12 things spitting and cussing and carrying out and listening to black music. That's an interesting thing. You go to the park, wow. these thugs were listening to Motown. You see, so you can see how they've been shaped by American culture. They couldn't get away from it, but they can't stand black people. Can't stand Jewish people. And of course, the Klan used to hate Catholics. Right. David Duke, the Catholic, head of one branch of the Klan, that's US upward mobility. That's what upward mobility American style is among the right wing. You can now have a Catholic head of the Klan. Right. And I did see a black man walking with him too. People don't like to talk about that Negro. He's walking with him too. He had the US flag and the cat right next to him had the Nazi flag. So, the I mean, next thing you're going to have Jewish brothers and sisters join. You say, hey, yes, human beings are human beings. They choose to be gangsters. Anybody can choose to be a gangster, no matter who they are. You see. But usually that kind of hatred of blacks and Jews 
Catholics less so now, still makes it difficult for blacks and Jews to become a part of that kind of extreme movement, even though we got a whole lot of black and Jewish folk as part of the conservative establishment, the neoliberal establishment, and we have to be honest and candid about that. But even Netanyahu, you know, likes to cozy up with or bonds fascists, anti-Semites in like Poland and Hungary. I mean, that's like they use the Holocaust to justify all the abuse of Palestinians. And then they wind up like aligning with people who actually did, like in Poland, they actually passed a law saying you couldn't blame the Holocaust on Poland. And it was a very awkward moment for Netanyahu. That's, that's very, very true. I mean, that's why we've got to be morally consistent no matter what. I mean, it, 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 at that point, it's, it's never just a matter of what is strategic and tactical. But it's that, no, we're staying in contact with the humanity of those Jewish folk in France who are getting trashed. We're staying in contact with humanity, these Palestinian brothers and sisters under this vicious Israeli occupation. We stand in contact with humanity, the peasants in Brazil. We stand in contact with humanity while poor white brothers and sisters in, in, the, in Appalachia. We stand in contact with humanity of Brother Floyd and the black fool who gets shot down. There has to be that kind of moral consistency across the board that's not in any way driven by any kind of narrow tactical or strategic thinking. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll open that if I could, because I thought that was an important point that King, that Dr. King often wrote about and spoke about, was yeah. that it, it's, not, it's not merely a, a tactical question, or at least it wasn't for him, that there was this, also this profound moral dimension to hit, at least as he understood it, the principles of nonviolence that uh, in, in your action, you, you want to avoid um, radiating more bitterness through the universe, that this is something that is important for you, not only for, your, for the movement, but for, for your own self. Um, but this feels, again, controversial now in a way that it, it hasn't been uh, in a while, uh, that, this, that that moral question that he grappled with quite a lot in public. I, I don't hear it spoken about as much right now. Um, what, what, what's your feeling about that? No, I, I think you're right about that. But I think we have to keep in mind, my dear brother, that um, in the 1960s, I can remember having debates with my dear brother, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Touré. I used to bring him to Princeton all the time. And it was intense because they'd have all these different marches against him on all kinds of different issues, Zionists, racist and so forth. I say, no, no, we're going we're gonna to have a dialogue and we would go at each other. And, uh, uh, and, and, and he represented a very, very crucial perspective. Because I had a lot of agreement with him in terms of his critiques of the empire and capitalism and what have you. But he kept saying that the issue of morality had to be subordinate. And I was arguing, no, it's got to be superordinate. And that uh, uh, after King's death, King's position was more and more minority. It was more and more minority. It really was. And so up until 68, with King's presence, it was strong. But remember now, even with King, you know, when he was shot, 55% of black folk disagreed with him and 72% of Americans did. Uh, so he was never a popular figure, never. But uh, it became much more a, uh, a moment of the great inimitable Malcolm X. I mean, Malcolm's moment was after his death, as you know, after he died in February 65. And when he talked about by any means necessary, that was this sense of, look, 
whatever we do is in some ways justifiable if it somehow furthers the black freedom movement. And, 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 and some of us were saying, God, we understand that sentiment, but you, you could slide down a slippery slope. So you're going to end up with some black gangsters running things in the name of the liberation movement. Or you can end up with black gangsters posing as freedom fighters, but acting as neoliberals in the system. See, because the gangsters come in a lot of different forms. And some of the biggest gangsters, Wall Street, Pentagon, Congress, higher echelons of the professions, very, very sharp and so well-mannered. But as Melville said, oh my God, look, just scratch. You see an Indian hater and a slave holder and a man of property who's subordinating these workers and manipulating these women, but walking around so calm and serene. That's in Pierre, you see, that's Melville's prophecy. You see. He's absolutely right. Just takes different, different circumstances these days. And so that battle in the 60s, after 68, though, mm-hmm. is one that in some ways we, we're recycling. And, uh, uh, and, it, and it has to be worked out and fought out over and over again. I mean, I, uh, some of my closest uh, 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 partners, people like Glenn Ford, the black uh, uh, gender reporter, I love that brother, Margaret Kimberly. Or of course, Carl Dix, Revolutionary Communist Party, with Bob Ovechkin. You know, we've been to jail many times, and we argue all the time. They still got their own yeah. kind of analysis of Mao and so forth and so on. You know, they make oh, brother West, you got that old king morality, spirituality, talk about music all the time. It's nice, but when it gets down to it, really, this morality may not play the same kind of role that you wanted to play. I said, well, you know, I'm not sure. Jumi Baraka, who I have great respect for, uh, the Alliance for Black Alliance for Peace, their critique of empire is just indispensable. But you always push, push, push uh, in terms of this role of morality and spirituality. I think tied to music. I think music itself is sedimented with a spirituality and a morality that connects us human to human, creature to creature, person to person. See? Didn't, oh, sorry. Well, di- didn't Bayard Rustin, I remember reading or hearing that Bayard Rustin convinced Martin Luther King not to keep a gun in the house. But someone just told me recently that Martin Luther King, it was Malika Jabali, I believe, who's an excellent r- journalist, that Martin Luther King would stay with people who had guns often. Um, Absolutely, that's true. So that's true. even those questions of ab- principles and absolutes, I, I guess what I've... I've long thought that like nonviolent um, direct action was just the most, um, not even on a moral level, but just on a tactical strategic level, the way to go, because clearly we're, like the left or people will we'll never out arm the right or the state. That's, that's true. But that's true. it does seem like you can offer and I mean, you can make a moral argument for certainly for vandalism. If vandalism is moving the conversation in a way that will either reform or defund or whatever the outcome is. But if this is going to be some kind of turning point, you could easily argue that it's the moral thing to do, especially when it's vandalism and not harming human beings. Even when you talk about vandalism, I mean, I, I'm just against looting, even though I begin with the kind of legalized looting of Wall Street 
and the vicious kind of violent driven looting of the Pentagon. But I, I think looting itself is wrong. And we have to just have to say that across the board. But even but but when you look at which businesses actually are looted in most of these rebellions and uprisings, it's not on the vanilla side of town. Most of it's on the chocolate side of town. You see, so you get this weak, lumping black bourgeoisie, weak entrepreneurial class that gets attacked, or some of our Korean brothers and sisters whose businesses are in the hood. Now more and more Arab businesses that were in the hood, you know. 80 years ago, it was often Jewish small businesses, men and women who were in the hood. They were the only ones who were willing to actually be in the area that was viewed as undesirable from the vantage point of most business people. They're the ones who bear the brunt. So even when we look at vandalism, if we look at it just tactically and, 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 and strategically, you would say, Good God, yeah, I think it's wrong to, to, to vandalize any business. But if you're going to go that route, why are you attacking Jamal and Letitia's business and leaving Mr. McGillicuddy's business intact? What's going on? Brother West, are you saying we need to go across town and attack? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just raising the issue. If you're going to do why it. why it is that this is the particular form of vandalism. You see what I mean? And so, and, and, and when you look at it from the vantage point of the, the small black Korean Arab business group in the black community, they've been there with the folk all the time. You know, this is not Walmart we're talking about at all. This is not, the, uh, who is it though? J.P. Morgan and all these other folk now, because see, what is happening now, of course, is that the black bourgeoisie is in for a big bonanza. Because these corporate folk are running scared. They throwing money like, I don't know what. Take this. Take these millions. Take these millions. They even got the fashion world giving up all these millions and millions of dollars. Who's going to get that money? You think folk on the ground going to get it? No. Working class going to get it? No, it's going to be black middle class folk. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm working on a program that I got a program. I got a program. Oh, really? All right. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying that that, that kind of philanthropy just reproduces a hierarchy all over again. This is yeah. not just a movement for philanthropic concessions. We're looking for fundamental transformation of institutions and structures. And as long as those institutions and structures refuse to undergo serious change, their basic response by instinct is going to be philanthropic. Take the money. Take the money. You can't even open the New York Times now without seeing two-thirds of the faces black. Mm. I'm almost tired of seeing so many Negroes in the New York Times. Hey! Why are you going to put them all up in the front now because you're in trouble? <laughs> Where you go, just put, just put, put, put black folk in there. Put black folk. The museums, you got all of a sudden now all the black artists, their work is just thrown out in the front. Hey, save space for Picasso. They do, you know, good God of money. What is it? Just a matter of that crude response to power. That's the questions I think that have to be raised. You see, and it has to be raised, you know, in such a way that it's not people don't misunderstand it. Because again, I'm not. I'm not against the black bourgeoisie. I'm against the greed. I'm against the 
uh, uh, the parochialism. I'm against the narrowness of any bourgeoisie. I don't care who it is. But it could be black, Catholic, Jewish, Italian, Polish, whatever. And that's the kind of moral consistency, again, that's very important. But, you know, these days, I'm telling you, it's going to be true for the next six to nine months. You are six to nine months. It's going to be black folk everywhere, everywhere you look. And then you look about another year, year and a half. We haven't fundamentally transformed the system. They're going to try to co-op. They're going to try to buy full costs or they try to kill off the serious ones. And they think they can go back to business as usual. But I think there's a chance that they won't be able to go back to business as usual. I think we can make a real advance. I really do. I think we can make a real advance because this is unprecedented. Very much. And, and just my, the last question for me is, how does that advance take place? Yeah. And what's the, what's the structure under which it takes place? Because I, I, for me personally, I have difficulty seeing that as Biden gets elected and somehow magically change happens. I, I don't particularly see it as something that is going to be implemented by a series of corporations that are going to say they've instituted new policies, that sounds suspicious to me as well. So how do you get to, well, we're going to address drone warfare, we're going to address greed on Wall Street, all these things that are fundamental that they're going to fight to prevent very, very much so. Like that, that's what I, I have difficulty seeing how that happens. I agree. I agree. I, I think that um, what Brother Barber is trying to do, what Sister Leah Thea Harris is trying to do in raising the issue of poverty, because there you have multiracial, multigender, multireligious solidarity, and you have to talk a language of abolition. So we don't want no left-wing version of slavery where you treat the slaves nice every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and still have slaveholders. We don't want a left-wing version of Jim Crow, where you only lynch the Negroes every three weeks as opposed to every week. Well, we don't want no liberal, neoliberal version of predatory capitalism these days, you see. We got to abolish poverty. We have to abolish decrepit schools. We have to abolish the kinds of mass incarceration regime. Well, how do you do that? Well. When you bring a whole host of people together with the same intensity that you're bringing people together around Brother Floyd, around those issues, you're going to get some concessions and not just philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you ain't going to get revolution. Not at all. But what did M. Goldman used to say? She said, if, if just voting could lead to a revolution, the ruling class would make voting illegal. <laughs> Emma understood because right. she'd been to jail many times. She knew what that nation state could do to people, you see. She was one of the great ones. But uh, I do think when you start getting mag- powerful concessions from the nation state and from the corporate uh, elites and the military elites, you're not going to be able to drop these drones or we're going to have such massive pressure. It's going to so thoroughly unstable your society. You're going to have to rethink it. Again, not revolution, but that kind of pressure mm-hmm. could be a real possibility as the, polit- the escalating political consciousness of those in the street takes place. And that's what many of us are after, you see. Mm-hmm. Because I think you're right, you know, we don't have, uh, that's why Medicare for All was so fundamental and why Brother Bernie was so fundamental. Because once you start talking about Medicare for All, it, 
is an indictment of big pharmaceutical companies, an indictment of private insurance companies, and that is a transformation of a whole sector of our economy. And it's not socialism, it's not communism, it's something decent, but it certainly is something that requires, you know, deep change, very much so. And, and they're trying to push that back and they're trying to make sure we don't make the connections. Mm. That's why our dialogue is so very important, you see. They don't want us to make the connections to come together, you see. Right. Not at all, not at all. No, they want niche market. Ooh, niche market that's it. change, yeah. That's exactly, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Niche market change. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> oh, like you got to make a song out of that. Yeah. yeah. You got to trade, oh, trademark right. that. Yeah. That's all right. That's Eesh. all right. Excellent. Oh, I got to talk to Bootsy about that. Yeah. So um, in terms of what the concessions would look like around um, po the police, what do you think we should be fighting for? What, sh what should people be demanding? Um, that's one question. And then I have a question. Um, I saw, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I saw that very, I'll call it a wretched display of, on, of uh, shouting, not from you, but from others on a certain show on Fox News. Um, oh. And oh, yes. and where you were not really allowed to speak um, because that Leo guy who has a very annoying voice, that's neither here nor there, but um, I wanted to know if you wanted to say anything that you were trying to say that wasn't as audible because they were speaking over you so much. Um, if you wanted, just to give you a chance to, if you wanted to say that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as you know, that was such a heavy day with Brother Floyd's uh, family and him being put in the, in the ground. And then my dear brother Anderson Cooper had allowed me to yeah. go on the show right before. So when, so when I shifted from Brother Anderson to Brother Sean, you know, it was like a shift from, good God, like, you know, Aretha singing on the one hand and uh, somebody isolated way off in a corner singing in a shower. So it was a major drop. Right. And my spirit was so raw. And I'd never heard of the brother before. I never even saw what he looked like. And uh -huh. I thought it was just going to be Sean and I having a dialogue. So all of a sudden, this guy just comes out of the thing. And he, the, the level of disrespect, see, three things I can't stand. I can't stand disrespect. I can't stand lack of gratitude. And I can't stand arrogance. Those yeah, three those things set me off. That's just who I am, you see. And, and he had all three of them. And I said, I went off. And I'm glad I did, because I was just being honest. You know, I had to yeah. be myself and so forth. But uh, it was sad that, that we couldn't have a discussion about the police. Because what I was trying to say was that the notion of defunding the police, for me, fundamentally means a reshift in resources so that you zero in on precisely those kind of things like housing and education, jobs with a living wage. You still have a public safety system, but you don't have a punitive orientation. And that requires then very much like massive cuts in the budget for military on a national level. It requires cuts in police, policing, and it's tied much more to the serving and the protecting. It's not eliminating protection, but it's understanding protection under the rubric of public safety. And public safety as a guardian is a very different orientation than this policing as some kind of a foreign occupied army in, in, in a black or brown or, or indigenous people's neighborhood, you see. 
And, uh, and I think that all of these discussions are very, very good ones. They're very, very important. Uh, we, we, in Newark, where we've talked about civilian oversight, of course, they're taking that to, to court now, the, uh, the, the police union taking that to court. You have to have some community control over these. And you need to have police who come from your community. You can't have folks just coming in from Benella suburb whose stereotype of black people is some kind of a, a figure they see on cops to show that they just cancel. Coming in every day, every day in a community that you have no connection with. They don't see you as shopping. They don't see you walking around. They don't see your kids playing in the same little league or singing in the same choirs or playing in the same bands and so forth. So all of that is important, but I don't, I don't think any of the talk now coming out of the neoliberals, be it Biden or Obama or Pelosi or the neo-fascists of Trump and company, all their talk about police reform, I think is pretty empty. Yeah, It's still very, very empty for the most part. You got one more, my brother? Yeah, just really quickly, the, the, the what, what about statistics-based policing? Uh, you know, the sort of broken windows theory of policing, this, this strategy that relies on very high numbers of engagements over very minor offenses, quality of life arrests, that, that, kind of, that kind of thing, which has had, you know, bipartisan support for, for, for decades. I mean, it, it, I, I remember I've talked to a lot of cops in, for doing stories over the years who, who hate that strategy and feel like that's, that's a big part of the problem. Is that something that, that would be a good fix or would be part of the solution anyway? You mean to eliminate that kind of? Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, I, I used to sit in on the lectures of James Q. Wilson at mm. Harvard, who's very odd. much responsible. Co-author, yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's very much responsible for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's responsible for a whole host of other things that have been quite ugly in terms of our, our society at, at large. Uh, uh, and I've been blessed to teach in prison. I just gave a commencement address just three days wow. ago. I've taught in prison for 37 years. And I've seen the swell of the folk as a result of these punitive uh, uh, policies resulting from this broken glass uh, uh, theory in which you actually hunt people down very early, try to somehow zero in on the predators, the language of Joseph Biden on the Florida Senate, or super predators, the language of Hillary Clinton right before the committee there in Congress. Uh, it, it, they, and they had the consensus of, right wing of the ruling class and the liberal wing of the ruling class. Democratic establishment, liberal, Republican party, right wing and now neo-fascist. And many of us were raising voices then. Of course, we were just voices in the wilderness at that point. Mm. You know, we thought that we had just lost our minds, didn't realize you had to be tough on crime to win any election, you had to be tough on crime. Look at the capitulation of the Black Congressional Caucus in this regard. Look at the capitulation of NAACP, National Urban League, so many of them didn't want to raise their voices. And we won't even get into the Obama years where we saw the worst of the black bourgeoisie. Nobody could raise a critical word on the black face of the empire, as brilliant and poised and beautiful as his family is. And he does have a very beautiful family. It's a beautiful thing. And they're wonderful parents, but still head of the empire and still militarizing the police still tied to Wall Street and drones and so on. So that the, uh, uh, so this, 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 this disposition toward uh, uh, criminal thinking and criminal, criminal, criminal and, and, and outright criminalizing of, of poor people and black people, thank God, has been radically called into question. Mm. 
And that's partly been an intellectual and ideological issue having to do with Michelle Alexander, Angela Davis, uh, uh, Glenn Lowry, Bruce Weston. There's a whole Waquant uh, uh, from Chicago. All of those folks played a very important role in shifting the climate of opinion. There's no doubt about that. Alex but where it hits and where it ends up is an open question. But in the meantime, I want to end on this note because, uh, you know, when you live in the kind of times that we do that, that are catastrophic, where uh, the planet itself just might not be around that long, or nuclear catastrophe is still a real possibility, that you have to fortify your soul in such a way that nobody ever is able to steal your joy, your precious memories, your style, and your smile. That's what it is to be a blues man, blues woman. Y'all know about the blues man and blues woman. They go through hell and high water and still got a light inside that shines in such a way like boots. He said, stars ain't got no name, they shine. Slice don't say everybody is a star, not just those on the stage, not just celebrities. Everybody got the light that can shine if you have enough courage to have a sense of history to connect with the past. Well, you something that people gave you, the love your parents gave you, the love your partners gave you, the music that's inside of you. Can't nobody take that away ever. And that allows you to keep your style intact, even though you're growing and to keep that smile on your face, even though you're crying on the inside. See, that's, that, that, that's something that we need to say over and over and over again in grim days. And keep in mind, for black people, for 400 years in, America, in, in this hemisphere, it's been grim every day. It's been grim every, every day. That's uh, that's that's beautiful. That yeah. uh, well, thank that you so much good. for yeah, for, for coming. And with uh, that, that was a great talk. It was really, yeah. that was really I love really y'all. Interesting. Love y'all. Respect yeah. you all. I'm telling you, so you're doing great. a wonderful work. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, this is work. so great. Come back anytime. Yeah. yeah. Stay strong. Stay strong. All right. All right. Take care now. Right on. Right on. Wow, that was great, huh? It was great. I'm really glad we uh, had that talk. I'm, I hope that everybody else had the same reaction I did, which was that crying in the corner. It significantly lifted my mood uh, to talk to him, and I think he. We we have to check the clicker on that because he he, he basically hit every one of the one of your your targets. Yeah, there. he did say Rokana, who I doubted him. Edward Said, and yeah, yeah. Who else uh, did he say? I didn't get all Melville. Of them. I didn't predict Melville. Malcolm and Martin, he did. Yeah, um, all the jazz like, musicians. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah we'll have to do a count next time. And uh, he, did, he, he did get another Bernard. Oh, he did. Who was it? Malamud. What I love about that discussion is that it's the discussion I'm not seeing so much in the press. He's taking a sort of a broad intellectual, historical right. look at this, you know, at everything. And... Um, and you know he he's not saying that he knows the answers to anything either. Yeah. He's 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 just like let's consider all these things. And he's not shaming and chiding. Well, yes, well, yeah, that's true, right? Yes, no, it's true. Uh, that was great. Anyway, yeah. uh, terrific. Um, and uh, you know, as always, uh, rate and review the show. Rate and review. Can. Subscribe yeah. on YouTube. You do that little button thing. 
Um, right. Make sure you check out. Now, this is rare because we usually like to give you um, directions to um, kind of attack, um, defame, desecrate podcasts like Pod Save America and the Axe Files. But I'm actually going to say that uh, we're going to give the official Useful Idiots bump to the tightrope. The podcast, right, the, new podcast the new podcast by um, Trisha Rose and Cornell West. Not that we needed to give the official bump because you just heard him speak and we mentioned his podcast and it's great. Right. It is good. I'm not just saying that. I listen to it. It's really good. I really like the vibe between them. Um, and it's funny and it's, yeah, I'm excited to listen to more episodes. They talk about Prince. I learned from that episode that Purple Rain, he wrote to Stevie Nicks. Prince wrote to Stevie Nicks for lyrics. And she was really? like, I can't, I can't do it or I won't do it. I don't know what the issue was, but she didn't do it. And then apparently he also was planning on having it be like a country song first, country music song. And then he and the revolution recorded it. Um, huh. they I'm kind of glad it turned out the way it did. So, Of course yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so definitely listen to Tightrope. I would say yeah. like in terms of the Axe Files, just practice nonviolent resistance. And if you're thinking about listening to it, you know, um, get in the lotus position and just don't do anything at all, you know? Yeah, don't, don't do, listen to yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Definitely don't listen to it. That's, yeah, let, sure. let the Let the transformational power of inaction uh, win the yeah. day for you. Yeah, embrace yeah. your inertia. Embrace right. the inertia because certainly David Axelrod did, politically speaking. <laughs> right, that's true. So f fight, fight an action with an action. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I like it. All right, terrific. Well, thank you so much, for everybody, for listening or watching, yeah. and uh, we'll we'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.